in the pre-colonial cultures that I'm looking at, hair was a really central and important artistic medium through which people expressed everything from like their spirituality to like their social status, social commentary, all of these things. And it's a really important part of their culture because they own their own time. Yes. They prioritize doing their hair. So if the hairstyle takes three days, the hairstyle takes three days. That's the priority of the culture. I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shapers who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Emma DeBerry is an author, a teaching fellow in the African department at SOAS, and a visual sociology PhD researcher at Goldsmiths. She has presented several TV and radio programs, including BBC Radio 4's critically acclaimed documentaries, Journeys into Afrofuturism, and Britain's Lost Masterpieces. She's the author of the 2020 book, Don't Touch My Hair, also called Twisted in the United States, and the 2021 book, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition. Don't Touch My Hair or Twisted is an Irish Times bestseller and is also our second book selection for the Good Ancestor Book Club. Emma's passion for African studies, history, sociology, literature, and liberation movements shine both in her work and in this conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Good Ancestor Podcast. I'm your host, Leila Saad, and I am here with the beautiful, amazing Emma DeBerry, the author of Don't Touch My Hair, also called Twisted in the US, and her brand new book, What White People Can Do Next. Welcome to the show, Emma. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and I've been so looking forward to this conversation. You and I had the chance to be in conversation in 2020 about my book, mm-hmm. and it was such a pleasure to speak to you at that time that I'm I'm just thrilled to be able to, to be back in conversation with you and to ask you about your work this time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it as well. And that conversation was fantastic. I had so much um, really, really positive feedback from it so many people got such a lot from it so oh, I'm it was, so glad to you were that. wonderful <laughs> oh thank you as were you as were you so I also wanted to say um Emma is our second author who's featured in the Good Ancestor book club this month we are studying her book Don't Touch My Hair also called Twisted it's her very first book and for various reasons I wanted to choose it I've been going through a journey of exploring myself through exploring my relationship with my hair. And we wanted to also choose a nonfiction book for our second month. And it just felt like the most natural choice. And we just kicked off discussions yesterday. And I know it's going to be an incredible month of conversations throughout the month. And then at the end of the month, we will be 
in a private author event with Emma, where our book club members can ask her their questions themselves. So I'm very excited about that. And um, thank you for saying yes to being a part of the book club, Emma. We're really honored to have you. No, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. So if you're listening and you'd like to join the book club, you can just visit goodancestorbookclub.com for all the details. All right. So our very first question, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned familial or societal who have influenced you on your journey? Yeah, I absolutely love that question because the idea and concept of ancestors is really like central to my work and my latest book what white people can do next some of the um reviews have been saying that I feel like I'm not boasting saying this I'm just repeating what other people I, well have I'm giving you full permission <laughs> to boast. Have said. Please boast. <laughs> <laughs> but no it's been incredibly exciting for me because the work has been likened to people that I see as my literary ancestors and even beyond that, actually, whose work has been like very, very instrumental in my own and whose energy mm. animates a lot of my, my thinking, whose previous work animates a lot of my thinking. Yeah. So one of the reviews was saying that there was echoes of Baldwin and Baldwin is somebody that I draw on a lot. Mm. I draw on his work a lot in the book, in the second book. And another of the reviews said it was as though it was written by the love child of James Connolly who was an Irish revolutionary socialist who was executed by the British in 1916 in the Easter Rising, which is a really like important date in Irish history and the fight against imperialism and British colonialism. So they said it was um, as though it was written by the love child of James Connolly and Audre Lorde. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't deal with it. Wow. <laughs> so that was, was very exciting. That's amazing. So they would be some of the people who I would, yeah, see as ancestors. There's other characters as well, other people as well. They, they tend to be writers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I recently read a book called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And the woman who wrote that, Harriet Jacobs, it's the only slave narrative that is written by an enslaved person who that focuses on the specifically on the sexual exploitation of women mm. during slavery. And it's just an incredible book. Like not only her remarkably like harrowing story and what she went through to get her freedom and to protect her children, mm. but also the quality of the writing itself. Mm. And in fact, when it was first published, they didn't believe it could have been written by someone of African descent. Wow. And it was actually credited as being written to a, a white woman, but her name has been restored as the rightful author. So there's lots of people. Oh, I love that. And I imagine hearing feedback like that, like, I think it's beyond, right? It must be quite overwhelming. And how are you receiving it? Yeah, it does feel overwhelming. And I even feel like uncomfortable saying, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it just feels like the greatest honor yeah. <laughs> that, could be bestowed, that could be bestowed on me. So um, yeah, it feels Yes, slightly overwhelming, but amazing. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you said it kind of makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Do you think maybe that's because we so honor these literary ancestors and what they mean to us that, you know, it's kind of like they're otherworldly, you know, that there's no way that we could touch anything close to them. But at the same time, I think about the fact that they probably felt 
like that in their lifetime when they were writing their books? About other people, right? Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. I'm just, I'm so happy for you. I'm not surprised you're hearing things like that. So I have my copy of Don't Touch My Hair here. So let's talk about you and your background. And I have a soft spot for anyone Irish because my husband is Irish. And uh, <laughs> and also, so I, you know, I had never visited Ireland until we got married. And, you know, I went there the first time and I was like, I am home. Like, I love this place. Mm-hmm. And if we ever had to leave the Middle East and move back to the West, I wouldn't move back to the UK, which is where I'm from. I would actually choose to move back to Ireland. That being said, I don't know the Ireland that you grew up in, you know, which is very different to the experience that I'm having now in 20, you know, whatever, visiting there and not feeling like an oddity. But in reading your book and your experiences, it's very clear that you were very, very other in that space. So tell us a little bit about you know, what it was like growing up in Ireland as a Black uh, mixed race child and how that informed your outlook of yourself and the world. Yeah, absolutely. So in the late 90s, there started to be migration to Ireland that has resulted in today there being like a visible non-white Irish population. Yes. And that started to happen in the mid to late 90s. Which is the part that my husband is part of. So he's come in that sort of late 90s migration. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's when there starts to be a visible non-white Irish population. And, you know, a lot of people that were born then are coming of age now. So there's really interesting kind of Black Irish and Brown Irish demographic change happening, Mm. which is having, which is just like, yeah, having a really fast like really beautiful culture like emerging you know and the country is has changed yes. in ways that I could never have anticipated in the 1980s right <laughs> when I was a child and even in the 90s like I was a teenager in the early to mid 90s and it was again before that migration was beginning had begun and yeah it was just like you know it was a country that was kind of 99.9 percent white catholic very socially conservative there were very, very few black people. There were very few people that were different in any way, you know. Mm. But particularly ideas about black people were quite established, even though there wasn't actually like a, a physical presence of black people. And a lot of that oh, had to do with like the role of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church was incredibly culturally dominant at that time and there were so many missions to Africa you know so as I talk about in the book you know kind of being accosted on the the street by like nuns who'd done like kind of missions in Africa but like stop me and I go into the type of exchanges that we had yeah in the book unsolicited exchanges and there was a real narrative of African inferiority and I actually was I was born in Ireland, but we moved to the States Mm. soon after I was born, came back to Ireland when I was like four or five. And that was around the time that Band-Aid was out, you know, with like Bob Geldof and the famine in Ethiopia. And that was just really, that image of Africa was really dominant. So there was the assumption that if you were black and any association with Africa, you should be kind of grateful 
to be in Ireland, you know, because there was this dynamic that the Irish were charitable and helpful to the unfortunate Mm -hmm. starving Africans. We had like collections for the black babies in school. We, um, the pennies for the black babies where, you know, you'd collect pennies and they'd be sent off to Africa. And I remember going to Africa, you know, kind of like not naming any specific countries. I remember going on holiday to Nigeria to see my grandparents and coming back to school. There's like skyscrapers in Lagos. Right. Like, my grandparents like have a chauffeur. And I was like, I don't think they need your pennies, basically, right. you know. And I was hauled out of the class and told, you know, that I had a chip on my shoulder and I needed to stop wow. kind of inventing stories. And there was a lot of resistance to anything that interrupted that narrative of African kind of primitivity and, and inferiority. So I had a lot of like kind of confrontational exchanges from a young age. Also, I think to me, what was so difficult was the fact that I didn't have any peers, really, or even other family members, you know, who I could really, my parents split up when I was about eight, my dad went back to Nigeria, and I have siblings, but they're a lot younger than me. So I was experiencing all of this stuff without having any kind of support from anybody else who might have had, you know, similar types of experiences so it was very much that sense of isolation I speak to young Irish people now who tell me that they experience racism but then they also tell me that like half of their class is black you know that's something that I couldn't even begin to imagine yeah it sounds like there's more there's now more black children in some classes than there were in the entire country when I was growing up you know yeah so it was that kind of it was that isolation that was really difficult it was the racism compounded by the isolation What I find really fascinating is that within that experience, you know, because as children, we can interpret things in a plethora of ways to try and make sense Mm -hmm. of what we're seeing and what we're experiencing. What I found really fascinating is that you were this like revolutionary from a very young age, (laughs) right? So tell us about the pamphlet that you created to... To teach people about the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so from a very young age, I felt like very compelled to tell like black stories. And I also read a lot from a young age and I read a lot of black history Mm. and I read a lot of books that had like black protagonists. Somehow we got them in Ireland. I've since found out that one of the bookshops that I spent a lot of time in, which is a whole nother story, was actually like a very radical bookshop Mm. and so as a result they had a lot of like very like small presses and they were actually selling quite a lot of um children's books that had black characters but also not just had black characters in a kind of like representational way but because it was a radical bookshop grounded in radical politics these were often like you know from small kind of like marxist like publishing houses and stuff right messages this is in the 1980s as well you know things are politicized in that way often so I was consuming all of this quite radical texts but kind of not consciously and um, I just really from a young age could see the experiences that I was having kind of on my own in Ireland as part of a bigger story of black history and forms of discrimination and oppression that that black people 
you know, had experienced and were experiencing globally. I just kind of tapped into that. I also felt, and this is really interesting about ancestors. I also felt that there was, the way I used to think about it was there was somebody that I was like descended from Mm. that wanted me to talk about this stuff, right? But I couldn't really articulate it properly. And I didn't say it to anybody because I didn't have any frame of reference for that. And it just seemed a bit odd. And I already was seen as extremely odd. So I was like, let me not add to that. I'll just, I'm not going to talk about this. Then when I left Ireland as a teenager and moved to the UK to go to university and did a degree in African studies. So my dad is Yoruba, which is like one of the main ethnic groups in, in Nigeria. And I started to learn about the Yoruba cosmology and the centrality of ancestral spirits amongst the Yoruba not just amongst the Yoruba, but across throughout the continent of Africa more generally. Mm. And you know, names in Yoruba like Baba Tunde and like Yetunde, which are like father comes again, grandfather, like if a child is born after a you know grandfather has passed away recently, it will be like Baba Tunde. Mm. And if a girl is born, it will be Yetunde, which is like, you know, like grandmother comes again. So I realized that this idea of kind of ancestral presence actually was very commonplace within that part of my culture. So now I kind of had a a frame of reference through which I could kind of understand those earlier thoughts that I hadn't really known how to articulate or to make sense of. So that was interesting. Yeah. So you, what I loved is that you, you know, you created this pamphlet Oh, I didn't answer that. Sorry. Yeah. Can you remember what the subject was? (laughs) Yeah. So when everybody else was doing catechism, because Ireland's a very Catholic country, um, I didn't make my communion or my confirmation as a personal kind of decision, which was, again, like extremely odd. Mm. So when everybody else was, the rest of my class was learning the catechism, the lessons that they needed to go through those very important rites of passage in Ireland, I kind of was off on a desk on my own doing like an an independent study project and I wrote an anti-slavery (laughs) self-assigned I wrote an anti-slavery kind of treatise called break the chains and I remember the cover it was like the length of a copy book and then I I pasted on this like white paper covering and then I drew like these slavery shackles being like broken apart and it was like the story of Aludo Equiano who was an abolitionist Mm. a really famous and influential African abolitionist there's actually a question mark over whether he was born in present-day Nigeria or in the American South but he became free and moved to the UK and actually married a, a white English woman, but he was a very influential abolitionist. And I wrote kind of a, like a summary of, of his life. And then I brought it up to the present day. Um, and I tried to contextualize the circumstances of, of Black Americans through the history of, of slavery, basically. And I think my teachers were just like, <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with this. Did you present it to them? Like, I've finished this self-assigned project like <laughs> yeah because I was doing it like for ages I was yeah. working on it like, uh-huh. for a long time uh-huh. I think maybe I got a tick at the end or something <laughs> I wasn't particularly praised for it you know I, I, think I just didn't know 
what to do. And I think they were just like, oh, it's just weird. But like, of course it's weird. That's the kind of weird shit like a foreigner would do. Right. You know, that kind of attitude. So, yeah. Well, I I mean, I think it's incredible that you've been using your voice in that way from such a young age. And also that you are, and this is what I love about reading Don't Touch My Hair. You are like one of my favorite kinds of writers, which is a writer who loves research and loves to take that research and make it less academic, but still have it be very thorough and very, like it's meaty, right? It's not top surface stuff, but it's relatable in a way that an everyday person can read it and feel like they really learned something. I love writers like that. And it sounds like that's what you did from this very, very young age and try to contextualize it, trying telling a story about why this matters. Why is this important for us to understand? It seems like that's a thread that stayed with you. Yeah, thank you for that observation. You know, I, I went on to study history and I always felt that any conversation that was like trying to make sense of why things are the way they are now without any kind of wider historical context I always felt frustrated by that I was just like but it's like that because of this and if we don't know if we don't know that we're not going to understand how and why we're here you know so actually I think that is something that I felt for a long time that's incredible so you talking about sort of your upbringing and you know what your experiences are you were the only basically right I mean around you looking you're not seeing people who look like you and On top of that, an added sort of complexity or nuance is that your mother is white. So you were not getting that reflection of yourself through her as well. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about the journey of your hair and in your relationship with your mother. Because, and I'll say this, I have a black mother. My mother with my hair, she looks back on photos of me now and is like, I just didn't do your hair. (laughs) You know what I mean? She gets so embarrassed when I post like older photos of me because she's like, she raised me effectively as a single parent, even though she wasn't a single parent because my dad Mm -hmm. worked at sea and was away for months at a time. So she was a single parent. She had three kids and, you know, it takes time to do black hair. Yeah. And I was also, you know, it was hard to get me to sit down to do the hair. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a lot of photos where my hair is just like, there's a lot going on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, at age nine, I remember that's when she started relaxing my hair. And my mom, again, for context, is also a hairdresser. So I've always had my hair done to her by her. Even when I got, you know, started locks, she is the one who started them for me. Oh, that's so lovely. So I know that as a black girl with a black mother, hair was this thing, right? It was always a thing. Mm -hmm. What was your experience with your mother? Yes. So I spent like the first few years of my life living with um, my mum, but also like my extended Nigerian family. So like my grandparents, there were lots of black women around basically. And then my hair was just worn like very short. I just had like a really short Afro, which is quite like a you know, an ordinary hairstyle for like little Mm -hmm. Nigerian girls. So I don't really remember it like being an issue. When we moved back to Ireland, it was just allowed grow. And then there weren't black people around anymore. And also for me to have just had like a short Afro as I was getting older in Ireland, I would have hated that, you know, because that was so far 
from the boundaries of femininity, which right. was to have ideally blonde, but even if it wasn't blonde, to just have very long flowing hair. That's like what little girls did. I know hair is a very potent and central thing in a lot of cultures, but in Ireland, there really was a a cultural tradition of little girls having very long hair Mm. and that being like a real little, that being a real marker of being a girl, you know, and really kind of where beauty and femininity and girlhood were seen to reside. So having like a teeny weeny Afro in that context. So anyway, my hair started to grow and obviously it wasn't growing down. I have very, tightly coiled afro textured hair I've really inherited the Nigerian side of my hair and it was just growing and just not really done like my mom didn't know like about you know like detangling or how to like twist it or how to like braid it or anything like that and then also there just weren't the products like Mm -hmm. available in Ireland at the time so there wasn't like the expertise and there also just wasn't really the products like we get stuff this and this is before the internet as well so it's not even to go online and like order it you know and the reality is the products have only really become available on mass in very recent years right so I can imagine in the 80s it's like what do I do? What do I put in it? How do I do it? And also when I was researching Don't Touch My Hair slash Twisted, I went into the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton and I was going through um, old hair magazines, black hair magazines, black beauty magazines from the 80s and early 90s. And the products like the Stay Sofro, Pink Luster Oil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like the Dax. <laughs> There's the blue one as well. <laughs> yeah, the blue jar. Yeah. Those products, you know, they are not like the products that we have today, no. like for natural hair, you know, and the language in the ads for the products was all really like punitive and kind of to do with like your hair being a problem. So I always say my hair was like presented as a problem that needed to be managed. I know, in fact, I know now that wasn't just because I had a white mum. Mm. That's also the way Afro textured hair was seen in that time, you know, by many people. and. My mom, there, there were a few Nigerians in Dublin at the time, not very many, but my mom had one or two like uh, Nigerian friends, female friends. And um, it was actually one of them that was like less just straight in her hair. Mm. So that was kind of like the norm in black culture yeah. at the time. So they didn't actually relax it. I had a texturizer put on when I was about 10 and I talk about it in the book. And I remember the woman was like, oh, Emma's hair is really quote unquote coarse. So like, let's leave it in for extra time to really, you know, break that hair down right? and break it down. It did because initially when we were finished, I had these like soft waves of hair, like kind of coming down because my hair was quite long. And by the next day it was starting to come out. I just like, my hair had just been burnt, you know, and God knows like it was coming out in handfuls I lost like lots of hair just not using the the chemicals properly you know and then my hair was just it objectively didn't look good you know right. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes I'd get like cornrows but um I didn't want to have cornrows because every all the other little girls had long flowing swishy quote-unquote princess hair mm. and then I'd leave the cornrows in for like a long time so they'd be like really fluffy and just it was just actually really traumatic. I was deeply, deeply ashamed of my hair. 
you know, when you said my hair started coming out in clumps, so I have an 11 year old and we will never relax her hair. That's not even a, <laughs> that's not even a question. And it's interesting because the, the conversations we have, she has a different hair texture than me because she has inherited more features from her dad who has more kind of Arab in him. We both have Arab ethnicity in us, but he has more in his family. So she's taken a lot of features from him. Her texture is more, so if we're talking about the hair types, which, you know, that's a whole other conversation in, in and of itself, but it's more that kind of yeah. type mm-hmm. three kind of curls as opposed to kinky, coily curls like mine. It's very interesting to me because her hair is the kind of hair in Eurocentric standards that if you're going to have curly hair, it should be this kind of curly. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Like this is the desirable kind of curly to have. And her constant reflection to me is I wish I had hair like yours. Yeah. Like I wish my hair grew like yours instead of growing like mine. And I find that so interesting because that is the opposite of the message that I received growing up and through most of my life, right? That this is not the kind of hair to have. But Mm -hmm. what I was saying was I can't imagine her at even 11, right? And clumps of her hair coming out because of something that we did to it to try and make it other than what it is. I can imagine that was highly traumatizing. And yeah, I mean, it's just really, really tough. But one of the things that you talk about is kind of the normalcy or the kind of, yeah, like the normalization that so many of us have, like, oh, you know, every few months I get my hair relaxed, like I get my hair straightened. And that's just the experience of being a Black woman in this society. Yeah. At what point did it become like, this isn't a normal that I want to have in my life? Like, at what point were you like, actually, this isn't normal? So when I was pregnant with my first son, yeah, I cut it all off. I had actually, I hadn't relaxed it for about a year before that. I had a lot of like new growth Mm. because my plan was to cut it off. So I guess for anyone listening who doesn't know, you can't like unrelax your hair. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You have to cut off all the straightened hair. And also the word relaxer, as I say in the book, it's like a really gentle, innocuous term for like quite a, a brutal chemical process you know you're deforming the elliptical shape of the hair and breaking the hair Mm -hmm. to make a facsimile of European textured hair yeah you're using like harsh chemicals to do that and so you can't undo it you just have to cut or shave your hair off and start again so I couldn't bear to have really really short hair again to have really short afro hair that made me feel like I was like kind of relinquishing victory to a long vanquished enemy. I was like, I can't do that. This is how I felt at at the time. So I had to like let my hair grow out. So at least I felt if it was going to be natural textured, it wouldn't be really short. So when I was pregnant with my son, my first son, I cut off all the relaxed ends and I had kind of like an in-between length afro, which actually was like, did really looked bad and it would have looked better just far more. If you'd just done it. (laughs) If I just had it short, you know, and just had it nicely barbered and just had like a teeny weeny Afro type thing would have actually looked really good. But I just was still obsessed with having like long hair, you Mm. know, in a way that is definitely informed by Eurocentric norms and norms of femininity kind of thing. And so I did it because I just felt, for me, a lot of people say it's not political. For me, it was political. I felt that my world view and what I was doing to my hair were not 
we're not in alignment. Mm. I also didn't want to use those chemicals when I was pregnant, which was really like, you know, the incentive to cut it off at that point. And they also say that when you're pregnant, you know, your hair grows more. So I was like, this is a good time to cut it off. I can get that length. But I still really felt that it was kind of a sacrifice. I was going to be kind of like a frumpy militant person. I couldn't okay. imagine that I could be like, you know, attractive and have natural hair. It was more like my sacrifice for the cause. And it took like still another maybe two years to get out of that mode of thinking. Mm. It's interesting that you say it started with pregnancy because that's definitely how it started for me. So when I had my when I was pregnant with my daughter, my first child, that's also when, you know, that's, you're like, I don't want to put chemicals in me. I don't know how it's going to affect the pregnancy. So stopped relaxing it. Mm -hmm. Again, the idea of shaving my hair off was just like outside of any realm of like any comfort. Right. So I just couldn't imagine what that would look like. And I think it is so informed by the persistent messages that we receive around beauty and what it means to look like a woman, what it means to be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I'd left it. I just didn't relax it. And then made the decision after the pregnancy that I want to transition to natural, but I didn't want to chop it off. So I had half relaxed, half not relaxed hair, which looked terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Because it, those two types of hair require entirely two different types of care, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So it was hard to know what to do with it. And I would go to hairdressers who were not black and they would just be like, what am I supposed to do with this? Mm-hmm. Which was very disheartening. And decided to go back to the relaxer because I just, I was like, it's too hard. It's too much work. It takes too much time, yeah. and that, right? Mm-hmm. All of those kind of things that I said to myself, but when I had my son again, I stopped it. And then I was due after he was born to re-relax it. And I had quite a bit of growth by this time. And I woke up one morning and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just not doing, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. And I said to my mom, let's shave it off. Like, let's just chop it all off. And so we shaved it all off. And I remember for the first time ever seeing what my actual hair looked like. And I was, mm-hmm. I was shook. Like, I was like, what? This is my hair. I have this hair. And it has been this amazing journey ever since of seeing myself in an entirely different way. You know, first the journey of growing and caring for Afro hair and sort of having, you know, a loose natural and learning about the products and the different kind of care and all of that amazing stuff. And now being on a journey of, I wonder what locks would look like, right? (laughs) We went into lockdown and I was like, "Mm." (laughs) wouldn't it be interesting if we locked it and saw what happened? Because my youngest brother has locks and they look really good on him. So I'm like, oh, I want to try it. But it is a journey. And one of the big things that I've learned in this journey, and I think you encapsulate it so well in Don't Touch My Hair, is our concepts and ideas around time. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of the time and the effort it takes to look after our hair as being a hassle or being something that gets in the way of other things that we should be spending our time on. And that was when I first started reading it, like I was reading and then rereading Emma. Like I was like, wow, I never thought about it this way. So can we Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? I would love to dive into that because you start this book talking about pre-colonial 
Africa and hairstyles and what hair means and how it's connected to so many other things. And the part about time really stood out for me. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, so the little bits and pieces that I'd read about black hair, a lot of them, you know, start start with slavery. And so they start with this stigma being attached to Afro-textured hair. And I was just like, that is not the beginning of the story. You know, that's actually a recent development. So I want to look at and explore what Afro-textured hair symbolized and expressed and its significance before there's any stigma attached to it, before there's any sense of kind of like shame or deviance, or there's any concept of like, quote unquote, good hair, right? being a hair texture that's like a, you know, a softer, more loosely curled texture. And I was really like fascinated and kind of just annoyed by this concept of like, you know, black hair being reimagined as a burden. And part of that burden is like, there's not enough time to do it. And then the blame, the blame for there not being enough time is placed on the hair itself rather than the system that we live in, which is a system that developed, you know, with other imperatives in mind and which was, has been like imposed on people of African descent. So I was like, no, let me shift the lens, the problem is not my hair texture. My hair texture isn't deviant. You know, it grows the way it grows for a reason. It's not a mistake. Yeah. So it does take time to do this texture of hair. But in the cultures that I was looking at, people had the time to do it because they weren't enslaved by industrial time, imperial measurements of time that seek to maximize profit under capitalism, you know, people were not the slaves of time. So even outside of actual bonded cattle slavery and the realities of that for people of African descent, the imposition of kind of like capitalist and industrial time also means that one doesn't really own their time, you know, Mm. whereas in the pre-colonial cultures that I'm looking at, hair was a really central and important artistic medium through which people expressed everything from like their spirituality to like their social status, social commentary, all of these things. And it's a really important part of their culture because they own their own time. Yes, They prioritize doing their hair. So if the hairstyle takes three days, the hairstyle takes three days. That's the priority of the culture. Mm-hmm. To me, reframing it like that, even if that's not necessarily our reality today, you know, reclaiming that time to do one's hair and not seeing it as a burden is becomes a radical act, you know, becomes a decolonial act. Yeah. Well, it makes me think about our hair rituals here at home, particularly again around my daughter's hair, which this, especially sort of in the maybe pre-pandemic, but also into the pandemic where I sort of was like, we're going to start braiding your hair. Like that's how we're going to take care of your hair. We're not going to brush it every day, right? We're not going to try and always have it in this style that sort of matches up with, again, like Eurocentric standards of what hair is supposed to look like, but we're going to braid it. And it takes time. It takes time to wash it. It takes time to condition it right? If we're doing a deep condition, yeah, it takes time to sit and braid it. And depending on the sides of the braids that we're doing, it t- could take two hours. It could take four hours, right? Like it, it's mm-hmm. going to take time. And she also has very long hair as well. 
but it's become this really beautiful time together where, you know, we want to put in this protective style that is expressive in different ways. Each time we're like, let's try it a different way. I'm exploring this part of my heritage as well, because it's normal for people from my ethnic background to, you know, have hair as a time, like you said, it's a part of creativity. It's a part of community, family time. Yeah. Intimacy and bonding. Absolutely. She really gets to own, I hope at least that she gets to really own her narrative as a black girl and grows up into a black woman who doesn't see her hair as a burden And it's also just our time together. Like we sit, we'll watch a movie or two, right? Depending on how long it takes. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's it's not this burden, but I've really had to shift my own programming around that. And so when I read in your book around, you know, exactly what you said, like they owned their time and they were not constricted by concepts of productivity that really come from a capitalism that is the foundation of which comes from enslavement. Mm -hmm. That this simple process of doing our hair is very revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Like Like I said, I read it several times over and I thought this is so about so much more than hair. Like this is about hair, absolutely, but it's about so much more than hair because it got me thinking about my time and how I use it and things that I think that I need to be spending it on. And also how sometimes when I have a lot of time, there's a sort of voice in the back of my head that's like, you're supposed to be doing something with this time. Right. <laughs> right. Like idle time is lazy time, right? Non-productive time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you talk about in your book, this recasting of Black people as being lazy. Can you talk about that? I can't, but could I just run to the loo really quickly? Yeah. <laughs> I drank too much water. I'm like, yeah, so this narrative of an inherent laziness of Black people is kind of one of the basic tenets of racism is just so deeply paradoxical. I mean, this is like, you know, a group of people who, if we're looking at those who were enslaved, you know, in the Americas and the, the Caribbean, people whose unremunerated mm. labor built the modern world the modern economies that frame modernity you know that generated vast vast wealth mm. for western nations and they received no remuneration for centuries the audacity <laughs> of attaching a narrative of laziness of all the narratives to attach Right. So that particular group of people is astounding, you know, it's astounding. And then even if you look at the the African continent for people who weren't enslaved under colonialism, there's enforced labor. Yes. When wage labor is first introduced in a lot of African countries, people don't want to do wage labor where they work for starvation wages Mm. to pay taxes to these colonial powers who've come and just like force themselves, kind of like impose themselves. So one of the things I write about in the book is actually the resistance that many African people had to the wage labor that that was being forced on them so that they could pay taxes Mm. to enrich European countries. 
And again, that's not laziness. I think it's really important that we actually see that in many cases, circumstances were better for African people before colonialism. Right. The whole development narrative suggests that Africa is being steadily improved by its uh, relationship and interaction with the West. And if you look at the circumstances in many of the, well, the countries are invented under colonialism, but in many of those areas that become the modern day countries, it's actually a place of abundance in many ways. Absolutely. The scarcity is an artificially created scarcity because you have these Western powers there extracting all of the resources often through forced labor, right? you know? So again, the narrative that people whose labor and resources is being stolen to enrich a group who oppresses them, the narrative that those people are lazy is, I guess, uh, to use the current parlance, gaslighting par excellence. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. So in the book, you, you track across, and I said a little bit earlier, this isn't just about hair, it's about so much more than hair. And it is, this book is sprawling in the things that it covers. Using hair as kind of a gateway or a frame to look at these different things, whether it's spirituality, whether it's capitalism, you know, the kind of like activism and civil rights movements and things of that nature. What was it that made you choose hair as the kind of prism to look at all of these different things? Yeah. So I think one of the strong motivating factors was hair is something that, you know, is a motive and many of us can relate to and are interested in. And it's kind of like a a popular and it's become Mm. a popular and mainstream kind of conversation. Yes. So I thought it was a powerful way because some people have described the book as something of a Trojan horse, which is quite interesting. My my new book is also being described as a Trojan (laughs) horse, something very different to what people maybe initially assume or anticipate. So I use something that is kind of popular and more well-known to introduce ideas about African metaphysics and philosophy and all of this stuff that is maybe slightly more obscure or esoteric, but I think is incredibly valuable. And, you know, we all can learn a lot from having a more of an understanding of it. I also really wanted to shut down that dismissive thing you hear because talking about black hair was, you know, really provoking, it was becoming more mainstream, but there was a backlash against that. And it was provoking actually outrage from people that were just like, oh my God, it's only hair, you know, just being really dismissive. Right. So I really wanted to create a robust challenge to that idea that it's just something frivolous and shallow and superficial and that it's only hair and to demonstrate that it's really, really so much more than that. And hair is a really In the context of Black people, hair is a really incredible way of looking at histories of resistance, at histories of assimilation, at all of these different forces. We can tell so much about the way Black people are being treated and how Black people are responding to that treatment or, you know, resisting that treatment through hair culture, you know? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That makes so much sense because, you know, again, you know, my own hair journey is very much informed by my 
personal healing journey, my sort of personal liberation journey. Absolutely. As I gained consciousness around things that have been programmed into me around what it means mm-hmm. to be black and a woman and how I internalized that and understood that and understood myself and that these conscious choices to big chop, right? To grow an Afro, to lock my hair. Yes, it's a certain aesthetic. It looks a certain way, but it's loaded with so much history. And it's a very intentional choice Mm -hmm. that isn't just about, I want to look different, but that I want to embody different than what I have been embodying up until now. Yes, saying that that really resonates. And as I say in in the book, when I kind of big chopped my hair and went back to my natural texture, the energy around me actually shifted Mm. and it it opened up a new chapter in my life. The changes that occurred were actually extremely deep and profound. And I don't think it's not all because of my hair, but it's also not just a coincidence, you know, there's a deep interrelationality. Absolutely. As I'm continuing to read, so I haven't gotten to the end of the book yet, but I'll be there soon. But the thing that I'm really paying attention to is what I'm learning about my own internalized oppression and also our collective internalized oppression. So you start us in pre-colonial Africa where hair meant something different and different to what that was the norm for them, but isn't a norm for us now. It's something that many of us as individuals are kind of trying to reclaim and come back to and live in our lives, but it is not a norm into like what the history of natural black hair has been and what it looks like now. And I'm paying really, really close attention within myself to how I have internalized this idea, like you said, the hair being a burden, the hair taking time, trying to make it a facsimile of something else, and that it goes really deep. Like even within my own journey of having being where I am with my hair now, there are so many deeper layers still of internalized oppression around blackness. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are some of the things that on your journey have come to the surface that you're like, oh, that's that's internalized oppression. Like that's an idea that I have inherited or been programmed into that I've taken as normal, but it's actually not normal. And what are perhaps some of the things that your readers have reflected back to you about what that's brought up for them as well? I feel one of the things is the stigma that still exists around like hair that is my texture or your texture, the hair that is even within the natural hair movement, the idealized Mm. type of hair is still the softer, looser curl in many ways. And that's not to say that everybody that has that hair also doesn't have struggles and also doesn't have desires to have a a different type of hair, even as you explain with your own daughter. And again, I was writing about um, Tadiana Ali. Remember Ashley in The Fresh Prince? Yeah. Who we all wanted to be, or is that just me? (laughs) No, we all wanted to be. So a large part of that was her hair, you know? Yeah. She has Indian ancestry. I think one of her parents is Indian. And that is very evident in her hair texture. Mm. But I was reading, I write about in the book, the fact that she had in that hierarchy, she had high status because of 
her hair texture, but how she really wanted to have the same texture actually as her mother and her other black relatives because she just wanted to fit in, even though it was perceived as a status thing. You know, there was still a feeling of difference and othering. Mm. So with that being said, though, I think for me, one of the biggest things is, yeah, that kind of stigma around texture. One of the reasons it took me longer to go natural than it would have, not that it might have been, it would have otherwise, was because if I had had the type of hair texture that is more commonly associated with being mixed, I would have gone natural a lot earlier, but I knew that the hair texture that I have, that is the one that still remains, you know, often undesirable Mm. and stigmatized. So for me, it was really coming to love and to appreciate the particular texture of natural hair Mm. that I have. And I honestly wouldn't change it for the world. I mean, to me, it's the most diverse of all the textures because you can have, you can just have the Afro and then you can do, you can do anything from just having kind of the classic quintessential Afro to, if you'd so desire having it bone straight, you right. know, and everything that exists in between, in between that. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, it's the most kind of versatile and yeah, I just, I think coming like growing to love the texture that I have. One of the things that I find challenging or kind of confusing Mm -hmm. is, you know, hearing from people who are not black who say things like, but I, I love black hair. I think it's beautiful and I envy it. And I wish I had hair like that. And if I had hair, I would rock it and all of those kind of things. And I, I struggle with that and I can't quite put my finger on why, because I don't necessarily think they're lying, but I also know how hair that looks like mine has been treated. So I'm like, so I know I'm not imagining these things, right? But I also am hearing you say that you love it. So I, I don't know, has it been something that you've encountered? Yeah. And kind of- <laughs> yeah, it is. So when I've sometimes spoken about like the deep shame that I had around my hair as a child, and this shame wasn't like because it was something I was born with. It's because of the way people responded to my hair. It's That's something right. I invented, you know. I didn't have a sense of it until I was repeatedly told it. I've had white women say, oh, well, you know, we all just want what we don't have. I really wanted an Afro. Right. I really wanted to have Afro hair. And I'm like, even if that's true, yeah. were you going through extremely, like, damaging transformational processes to achieve afro hair Mm. and you felt like you couldn't be seen publicly unless you were seen with your afro because that's not what was going on that hasn't happened right and let's just be really wild and imaginative and pretend in this one particular instance that was happening then that would be an anomaly yes you know that isn't happening across the board where white women globally are participating in a damaging associated with lots of health risks right that part as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the chemicals in the relaxer are associated with everything from like different forms of cancer to like fertility issues and endocrine disruptions. White women en masse are not exposing themselves to those chemicals to create a facsimile of black hair. It's just not comparable. And even if a white woman doesn't like her hair, her hair 
isn't part of a package of things mm. that have been used for almost 500 years to dehumanize the group that she comes from. Because again, with the stigma around black hair, that's again, not something that just naturally emerges. That comes from the invention of race and the construction of blackness that we begin to see in the colonial Caribbean in the 1660s that is created, that is engineered to justify the dehumanization of black people, to justify their enslavement, right. which like Western economies are becoming increasingly reliant on. And one of the parts of that dehumanization is these people don't even have hair. You know, this is wool and this is what animals have. Right. So they will be used like livestock on plantations. So the stigma around our hair comes from that historical reality. So that stigma is part of a historical dehumanization of black people. Thank you. That is really helpful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In those instances where I hear that, I'm like, I know you mean well, and you're also trying to relate your experiences to my experiences so that, you know, we can have a conversation. But I also feel like you're just not getting it. And I don't know how to explain how you're not getting it, but it's deep and it goes, you know, what you just said about it's not happening en masse yeah. is so real. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Cause that's helpful yeah. for me to be able to process why I'm feeling uncomfortable when I hear that. It's a false equivalency. And one of the um, things in my new book, uh, what white people can do next, I have kind of like eight things that need to be done. And one of them is stop the false equivalencies. And that would be an example. It's not one of the examples I talk about in the book, but that would be one of the examples of a, of a false equivalency. You know, oh, everybody just wants what they don't have. Right, exactly. That is a great segue for us to talk about your next book, <laughs> which, um, congratulations, it's out now. How does it feel that it's out in the world? And can you tell us about what it's about and what you hope it can achieve? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been out for less than a week. Mm -hmm. So it's all very new and unfolding. The response to it has been, it's been very well received and the, the response has been incredible. You know, I'm still kind of in the midst of it. Yeah. It was very nerve wracking because the advanced copies of the book were only sent out to readers maybe like a week before publication date. So basically I didn't really know what anyone thought of it until right. it it's was been out publication in the world. time. Right. So I was like, ah, you know, <laughs> you like usually you have a little longer than that to gauge yeah. how people are feeling. So it was pretty nail biting, but yeah, it's been incredible. And again, it draws on just that background I have in African studies and in, um, post-colonialism and the black radical tradition and brings some of that to bear on the current anti-racist space. Yeah. So what is it about and what do you want it to achieve? So what I want it to achieve is, I'll, I'll just read the back. Yeah, <laughs> I please. think that would be the best way. <laughs> so, um, so it's what white people can do next from allyship to coalition. And I highlight the unequal power dynamics that I fear allyship mm. can reinforce and urge instead the building of coalitions of mutuality and shared interest. And then I have, um, basically it's divided into different 
how many steps one <laughs> a number of different <laughs> steps <laughs> which are stop the denial stop the false equivalencies interrogate whiteness interrogate capitalism denounce the white savior mm. abandon guilt pull people up on racism stop reducing black people to one dimension read 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 and dance redistribute resources mm. recognize that this shit is killing you too wow and that's it and then we need to talk about racial injustice in a different way one that builds on the revolutionary ideas of the past and forges new connections so again to reference ancestors I draw a lot on the organizing of the 60s and the 70s. There's a lot of references to the Black Panthers and organizing in that period. So again, kind of people that have, you know, been in the, the struggle from before my birth. Mm. I use them as a, a guide making my way through all of this. And this is why thinking about being a good ancestor is just something that gives me so much life and just so much nourishment and inspiration is that there are so many lessons from history, so many things that people have already grappled with the kind of questions that we yes. are grappling with in this time and have tested and experimented with and tried and found ways of doing liberation work that are there's ways of doing it that reinforce the very thing that you're trying to fight. And there's ways of doing it that are about tapping into something deeper so that we can build something more sustainable. I want to hug you. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this is why I think your book is important. I think it's important to not think that we are facing this for the first time and that we have to invent solutions for the first time, because this isn't a 2020 problem. This is a 1600s problem that people have been Absolutely. right experiencing and grappling with and you know really deeply sharing and practicing ideologies that are for the long term and that is important for us to link to that and to embody it now and at the same time in tandem with that together with that we are facing unique challenges in this time as well, mm -hmm. right? And things are showing up different, old things, but they're showing up differently or new things, pandemic being one of them, that are showing us things in different ways. And so there's a need for new innovation, new creativity, new thought leadership. And so it's like, we're in this long line of ancestors. They are the ancestors. We are the ancestors. We are also preparing the new ancestors who are coming, Yeah, right? And that we're constantly in this process of learning, right? Because it's so easy to say, you know, do a book like Me and White Supremacy or whatever book it is, and that's it. That's the work, right? But we mm -hmm. are all learning from one another and building on top Absolutely. of what we are sharing. And so I love seeing a book, like when you were going through the steps, the different parts of it, I was like, yes, like this is important. There's so, <laughs> there's so many more layers. There's so many, it doesn't just stop with one thing. There were many things that you talked about, the points that you numbered that stood out for me. Distribution of resources being one of the most important ones, I think. Yes, 100%. <laughs> okay, because we can talk a lot. We can even change our mindsets. We can change our behaviors. But if 
resources are not redistributed, we're still dealing with power imbalances. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But the other one that just for me personally really stood out was, and I don't know if they were connected. It was read, you said read, read, read and dance. Yeah. Was that one? That's one. Yeah. 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 So it's okay. read, 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 and then in brackets and dance. Okay. Can we talk about that one? Because that was the one that gave me the most joy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the idea behind it is that, um, so first of all, I um, discussed the importance of reading, you know, so that we can tap into all of that work yes. that has been done before us, you know, that we can build on rather yes. than this idea that we have to reinvent the wheel. But then I say, there are sources beyond books too. European enlightenment thinking privileges distance and judgment over other ways of knowing. So we need to think about using senses beyond the problem-solving level. Mm. And then I talk about the Black radical tradition and how it's found in Black expressive cultures, where the most profound expressions of freedom are located in roots reggae and dub and jazz and techno in house and hip hop, not necessarily always in the lyrics, but in the sonics. That's one of the sites where the movement is liberatory, where it is black as in fugitive. This idea of fugitivity is one that I talk about quite a bit. And then I just say, use your imagination, use your creativity, tap into other forms of consciousness, dance, as Emma Goldman, the 19th century anarchist urged, for a revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. So yeah, joy is actually also really central to the proposition that I'm coming with in this book. I love that so much. And, you know, joy (laughs) and my own journey with joy has been very informative in my journey as someone who writes about anti-racism, because there has definitely been a, I've evolved in the way that I do my work Mm -hmm. so that it is, instead of me burning myself out, trying, begging, asking, waiting for white people to get it. It's how do I live with my full humanity now and not wait for that time to come? And so joy has to be a really important part of that and how I show up. But just as you were reading, one of the things that came to me was, oh, I okay, I see why her work is being compared to Audre Lorde. So I love her so much. <laughs> I am a huge, yay, huge, shout out Audrey. Huge, huge Audrey Lord fan. And it made me think of her essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, mm-hmm. and the uses of the erotic. It made me think of those two things. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's exactly what came to mind for me that there are these ways of knowing and these ways of accessing our magic, right? And our wisdom that go beyond what we have been taught by the, she says, like the white European fathers. Absolutely. And interestingly, something that I do in this book as well is also because I'm Irish, right? Which is obviously Ireland is like a white country, but I talk about a white quote unquote country, but I talk about our Irish people's inclusion into whiteness and how it's not as straightforward as no English people invented whiteness in the colonial Caribbean for a plethora of reasons. Right. Because Ireland is not a colonizing power. It's not a colonizing power. So it has lots of parallels with other colonized countries. But then the difference it has is that Irish people became, came to be racialized as white. Mm. So there's, there's parallels and then there's dissimilarities. But one of the things I talk about is like who were white people before they were racialized as white. And in the context of Ireland, I, I look at like Irish culture before the construct of whiteness and I pose the question that there's a 
a Scottish Gaelic ecological principle that I talk about in the book called Dukos. And it's like the entanglement between the human, the non-human and the environment. This kind of relationship that was bulldozed over by the construct of whiteness and modernity, even for people who are racialized as white. So those European white forefathers, there are other whitenesses in Europe that were also obscured right like whiteness whiteness also is diverse right whiteness is like a generic category imposed on lots of different people to consolidate capitalism but who those people were before they became racialized as white is very different and from the Irish perspective that's really interesting to me right and just as you were speaking about that particular concept, you know, I thought, oh, that's a very like an indigenous to many different places, right? Exactly. But an indigenous concept and that there is a history that people who are called white now have of indigenous culture that is very connected to indigenous cultures of people who are now called black or, you know, whatever other label that we're all connected in that way. But this very purposeful creation of whiteness, as you said, to uphold capitalism, cut that off. Exactly. And recognizing that can be helpful in the building of, you know, mutuality and solidarities while still recognizing our differences, right? you know, but reframing from allyship, which is kind of you know, maybe a favor from a benevolent, charitable white person, reframing it from that right. to the building of coalitions. Yeah. And it, sometimes it's a favor that, you know, is coming from a, like a white savior perspective, but I also have seen it be as a guilty party feeling like this is the atonement that I need to do for myself. Right. And the history of my yes. ancestors and that their only understanding of themselves is from the birth of whiteness as we know it today. A hundred percent. And that's why one of the headings is abandoned guilt. And one of the reasons guilt has to be dispensed with is because these actions being motivated by guilt center making that person feel better about themselves. Right. But making them feel better and helping them to get over their guilt. So it's going to kind of distort like the action and the intention. So yeah. one of the things that needs to be dealt with, we, we can't be moving, but anti-racism can't be motivated from a sense of guilt. And again, Audrey Lord talks about that a exactly. lot. She's like, I have no creative use for your guilt. That's right. No. It doesn't do anything. And it actually, this is how I feel. I don't hold the expectation of anyone to live in a perpetual state of guilt because that is to live in a perpetual state of dehumanization as well. Yes. Right? So it's not helpful. It doesn't help what I believe the practice of anti-racism is really about, which is a stepping stone towards full human dignity for everybody. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not a place to land at and we just arrive at, we've become anti-racist now and we're here. (laughs) Right? Like, this is a stepping stone that we're using to try and get to the better world where we don't even have to have these conversations. But being stuck in guilt is saying you're in this sort of purgatory of this is where you live now in this place of guilt. Yes. It's an incomplete and non-generative 
emotion, you know, if the guilt triggers like a behavior that leads to like greater knowledge and to change, then the guilt has some sort of purpose, but people often just become paralyzed and fixed in the guilt. And that's not helpful. (laughs) That's right. I know it's hard and we're going to be wrapping up now. This has been amazing. I could talk to you forever. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. When I've been reading this book and I can't wait to read the next one, I've just been like, oh, I want to ask her about this and this and this because she's just full of research and full of her own kind of creative thinking around these things. But it's often hard when you've just published a book to know the impact that it's going to have in the world. There's no way for you to know what your newest book is going to do and how it's going to affect people. But if you could choose, like if you could have a choice around the impact that you wish it to have, what does that impact look like? And, you know, you can be as vague or specific as you want, but what do you want to see it do? Like where two years from now and masses of people have read this book, what do you want it to have actually done? Well, I say in the book that I don't want us to be having this conversation as we've been discussing, these conversations have been happening for centuries, mm-hmm. actually. This type of, not just conversations, but actually, you know, like full on yes. movements work has been happening for a really, really long time. Mm-hmm. But I don't want these conversations to still be happening in 2010, even five years time. So with the book, I'm trying to bring in fundamental shifts in people's thinking and how they imagine and how they think about racialized identities I go that's the interrogate whiteness chapter is really looking at the, the how and why whiteness was constructed and I've had a lot of feedback on that one from people racialized as white being like wow I, I got the whole race was a social construct thing but I never saw whiteness kind of in those terms right so one of the things that's kind of key to the book is the fact that like there's a huge movement for racial justice. There's a huge movement for environmental justice. Mm. There are all of these different things happening simultaneously because the world is like, let me keep my my language before the watershed. <laughs> the world's not in a great place, you know? Yeah. But if we have this kind of atomized approach to issues and we're splintered, we are not as powerful as if we create these like mass movements. So it's about identifying, I say that the same forces that have a disregard for the lives of black people, that have a disregard for the lives of women, Mm. for indigenous people, for the marginalized, for the poor, for the earth itself, it's the same forces, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can identify that same origin that is the source of our different forms of oppression and exploitation, then you know, we can think about creating those kind of mass movements that somebody like Fred Hampton from the Black Panthers was trying to do with the Rainbow Coalition, Mm. where he brought working class Southern whites together with Black Panthers, together with Puerto Ricans. And people, you know, historically pitted against each other. And obviously the relationship between the Southern whites who had the Confederate flag, you know, this group, the young patriots had the Confederate flag as their symbol. Mm. Fred Hampton can see that even though they don't experience racism, they do experience police brutality because Mm. they're they're poor and they live in, you know, poor and under-resourced areas. They do experience the inequalities perpetuated by capitalism. So if they can identify that they actually do have shared interests, rather than see themselves as natural enemies, Mm. that can be incredibly powerful. But yeah, it's about kind of identifying our mutual points of interest 
despite our differences and differences that, you know, were invented to divide us in order to better exploit us. Yeah. Wow. It's powerful. I can't wait for everyone to read it. (laughs) At the end of writing this book, how did you feel? Like, did you find it energizing process? Did you find it a traumatizing, like what was the energy for you? So I found writing Don't Touch My Hair slash Twisted traumatic. Right. Actually, especially when I'm dealing with stories like Margaret Garner, whose story informed Beloved. Yes. Which I'm just about finished reading and took a side note to go and read about Margaret Garner and was horrified. Yeah, it's horrific. So reading stories like that, the research around that kind of stuff, I was traumatized by, you know, and it's not stuff I'm not familiar with, but I just felt very emotionally invested in it and it's flipping heavy. Mm -hmm. So in a way I found writing quite a lot of that book quite traumatic. This one, no, I found it more energizing. And even though Don't Touch My Hair is also hopeful in many ways and ends on a, on a hopeful note invoking a, a future the other book the, the newest book what white people can do next really does have like a strong thread of revolutionary joy mm. running through it and a lot of people have described it as hard-hitting but hopeful so I think I kind of felt that as I was writing it that was animating the the process it was also just really stressful writing it. Like, well, yeah, lockdown. and that's <laughs> two very small children. <laughs> but that aside. That aside. <laughs> but I love that for you. I'm so happy to hear that it's challenging doing this kind of work. And there's often a price to be paid because we're tapping into our actual life experiences and actual, you know, implications for what we look like and our identities. And so I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. happy to hear that this was a book that has given you hope that you're offering, um, that it's not just a a book that you've written for us, but it's a book that is giving you joy as well. I love that for you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I also just want to say, before I ask our final question, I just want to say, you know, getting to hear about your story from a young age to now and sort of, you know, obviously an outsider looking in, but it is so beautiful to see the ways in which the little girl that you are and that you were and the spirit that was within her, that that flame has just grown and become more beautiful and become more fierce and more proud. And when I see you, I see me and I see so many of us and I'm so happy for you and so happy for all your success and your unapologetic way of being in the world because it inspires me to show up in the same way. So I just want to say thank you because, you know, I think about often my own kids and who they're going to grow up to be and how they're going to grow up and show up in the world. And I'm like, I want everyone who I interview here is so inspiring to me. And your story is just like, it's incredible. So I just want to say I'm proud of you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. You know, because I, when I read your story, I was thinking about me as a little girl, right? And mm-hmm. the otherness that I felt and the kind of ways that I was explaining it to myself, which is the opposite of the way that you were processing it. It was very different. I think there's some similarities, but there's a lot of difference. But it's just, it's like, I see you winning. And I'm like, that's a win for my little girl, my inner little girl. And I love that. Oh, that's that's really, really beautiful and sustaining. And 
just deeply encouraging. So thank you. I will take that with me as nourishment and sustenance as I go on because it's not always easy. So thank you so much. It's not. (laughs) But I just want to hold up that mirror and be like, I see you and I love it. And I love it for all of us. Thank you. So our final question, Emma, what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor? To have contributed in the ways that I can to the world being a better place for more people (laughs) than it. Doing what I can do with what I have and who I am to, I don't, you know, I don't want to say it's like making the world a better place, but just, I feel like I have kind of like work that is my life's work, you know, that I I'm supposed to be doing and I'm doing that work. So doing that work is the good ancestor. Exactly. (laughs) You are a good ancestor. You are doing it. You have your mission, you know, your calling and you're walking it out and it's beautiful to see. And I love you. And I'm so happy to be connected with you and to be able to read your words. So thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. Honestly, like so deeply nourishing as ever. And yes, you're just, you're just wonderful. <laughs> Get to the world. Thank you. Thank you. This is Leila Saad, and you've been listening to Good Ancestor Podcast. I hope this episode has helped you find deeper answers on what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to have you join the Good Ancestor Podcast family over on Patreon, where subscribers get early access to new episodes, patron-only content and discussions, and special bonuses. Join us now at patreon.com forward slash good ancestor podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.